Welcome to McLean's Pop Culture Podcast, The Thrill, for the week of February 20th. On this week's show, grouching about the Oscars, we go deep into the micro-controversies over Sunday's Academy Awards, explore how accurate a biopic needs to be, and make our picks for cinema's big night. And Fifty Shades of eh, we watch the film adaptation of E.L. James' sexy book of sexy sex, and we'll tackle the big question, who the heck is this movie supposed to be for? And we bring in an expert on the topic, a man who wrote his own parody and took it on the road. I'm Adrian Lee, and I'm a digital editor who writes about arts and music. And I'm here with... I'm Emma Title, and I'm a columnist. And over to my right... I'm Julia Delorentis Johnson. I'm the editorial assistant. So I wanted to start off the show uh, just by saying how grateful we are for the response we've heard about our first episode last week. Uh, we've gotten great feedback, and we've gotten a lot of listens, and we're just really blown away by your support. Uh, it means a lot to us, especially because we're just getting off the ground right now. So, you know, I guess we hope you keep listening and keep sharing. And on behalf of the three of us, thanks. Thank you. Thanks a lot. All right, enough of feelings. Let's get going with our first segment about Sunday night's Academy Awards. season and of course the the jewel in that crown is Oscars which airs a Sunday uh, this year there are some firsts like the coming-of-age story boyhood shot over 12 years and there's some upsets like the no best actor nod for David Oyelowo for his portrayal of uh, Martin Luther King and at least three actors are nominated for playing British scientists incredibly uh, with us to discuss Oscar, we have one of our favorite movie writers, John Semley. Thanks for joining us, John. Thanks for having me. Favorite? Wow. <laughs> so what did you think of the crop of movies this year that are nominated? Um, I will say that I generally never get excited about the Oscars. I mean, uh, I don't want to sound like a teenage boy or something, but, uh, you know, they generally celebrate a sort of type of mediocre uh, prestige type film. I would call them TIFF films, like the kind of movies that open to great applause at TIFF, uh, but aren't actually very good. But there are some that I actually really liked. Uh, I mean, like I feel everyone, I really loved Boyhood. Uh, the two times I saw it, it both like emotionally wrecked me so hard that the first time I walked into a door, uh, <laughs> and the second time I like fell over a sign because um, I was so consumed by passion for it. Uh, and I really like Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel, and I really liked American Sniper as well. So I think that those three are kind of uh, the head of the herd for me. Uh, but films like The Imitation Game and The Theory of Everything. Oh, Whiplash I also really like too. Maybe I did like these movies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I really like that one too. Yeah, but the British scientist ones I thought were the sort of, you know, milk toast Oscar baity ones yeah. that I'm less interested in, I suppose. You brought up Wes Anderson's uh, movie and I kind of want to do that just real quick because I don't think we're going to spend that much time on it. Uh, you know, it won the Golden Globe right. uh, for, you know, best comedy slash musical. Yeah. A hilarious category that exists. Um, did that... <laughs> Did that come as a surprise to you, the fact that they won that? I mean, I feel like it is a very funny movie, I think, but it's also a very serious movie. I mean, the thing that it does is sort of transpose all these historical anxieties about the First World War and the Second World War in Europe into this sort of hyper-real comic landscape. Uh, and I think there's a lot of, like, resonant important stuff going on in that movie, but it's ostensibly just beneath this Wes Andersonian, twee-ish, caricature-ish veneer. Uh, that said, I'm someone who's really come around on Wes Anderson. It's like the Coen brothers now with me, where each film he makes becomes my favorite film that really? he's made. I find the opposite. I like him less and less. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> not a popular opinion. Well, when I room. was when I was younger, I liked Rushmore, and then everything Tenenbaums bombs I couldn't stand, and Zissou I couldn't stand. And with Fantastic Mr. Fox, I thought he sort of found his stride, where mm. it's like here's a man who treats people like they're cartoons, and then he made a movie which was like an animated <laughs> movie that mm. treats you know 
maquette animals as if they're people. And I thought that was such a natural extension for him. And then from there, Moonrise Kingdom, I really loved. And the Budapest Hotel, I thought was like quite remarkable as well. Yeah. So, And just as a filmmaker, like it's just it's clear when it's Wes An- a Wes Anderson movie. And that that's a rare thing still. Yeah, I think we got to the point where we realized like he's not going to do a 180 and start making movies that look a different way. So you just kind of learn to appreciate that instead of it becoming sort of boring and tedious, as I think it did with something like Zissou or The Darjeeling Limited. Uh, he's really sort of expanding that style and doing things that are more interesting uh, emotionally, I think, than just having sort of wealthy characters snipe at each other for 90 minutes or two hours. Though I'd love him to do a horror movie like that SNL sketch. From the twisted mind of Wes Anderson. It's the midnight coterie of sinister intruders. Um, so, but no shot, no shot at the Oscar. I don't think so. No, except for like those awards that no one pays attention to, like costuming. No offense to the people who do all this <laughs> like, tremendous, very detailed work, but costuming, set design, stuff like that. I think it'll probably maybe take some awards. Uh, but I mean, as far as best picture, I don't think it really has a snowball's chance, as they say. We have a lot of biopics nominated this year like there's the alan turing movie the imitation game there's martin luther king selma stephen hawking in the theory of everything chris kyle and american sniper there's cheryl Strayed and wild reese witherspoon is nominated for best actress for that and there have been a lot of or, or there's been at least a few controversies around some of the accurate portrayals of the characters like lbj and selma he said that wasn't quite um authentic enough and then alan turing in the imitation game that that story was a little used a little too uh, intensely the creative license so i I wanted to know what you guys think about whether biopics are like based on true story. Movies have a responsibility to show the gospel truth of a story or whether they have creative license to kind of fudge the lines to tell a, a better story. Emma, what do you think? Well, I don't think that um, biopics have a responsibility to be historically accurate because a lot of times historical accuracy is boring. If most films were historically accurate, we probably wouldn't want to watch them. Mm-hmm. Um, But I do think that sometimes they have a responsibility to be fair. And I think in the case of um, The Imitation Game, the portrayal of Alan Turing wasn't exactly fair. There's a big um, ultimatum in the movie that's posed by one of Alan Turing's colleagues, another mathematician who's actually a Soviet spy. And he says that he's going to out Alan Turing for being a homosexual, which is obviously a big no-no in those days, if Turing turns him in as a spy. And Turing chooses, at least, you know, for the present time, not to reveal that his colleague is a spy. And this angered a lot of historians because um, it sort of implied that Alan Turing was willing to be a traitor to his country in order to conceal his sexuality. And whether or not you think that's a totally fair thing to do, considering the time in which he lived, it was kind of unfair, I think, of the filmmakers to give people that impression. I don't know. What do you guys think? I think... I mean, at the end of the day, these movies are entertainment, right? And if people are getting their knowledge of the past from these movies and they're taking that as being true, that's not the fault of the movies or of the people who made the movies. I mean, the irony is that a lot of these things are based on books that get rebranded with now a major motion picture. And do people go out and seek these books? Do they compare it against the movie itself? Um, I don't know if they do or don't, but I think ultimately, you know, 
American Sniper took a lot of creative licenses. They created this sort of uh, Syrian Iraqi counter sniper who was sort of a mirror image oh, that of Chris guy Kyle. Wasn't real? He was real. <laughs> Mustafa was real, but it wasn't this like long the rivalry, rivalry between the. Yeah, but the I thought snipers. it was one of my favorite things about the film yeah. because, and a lot of people criticize the way that film treats Iraqi people and Middle Eastern people. But I think with that plot line, what Clint Eastwood is basically doing is saying, well, here's a Syrian Iraqi character who you can imagine has as sort of complex complicated a personal life as Chris Kyle's character and you don't necessarily see that on screen but it's this sort of mirror image to Kyle it's sort of like what Eastwood did when he released Flags of Our Fathers and then did Letters from Iwo Jima mm-hmm. sort of the counter movie to that I sort of see something of that playing out in American Sniper as far as the Alan Turing stuff it's like you have to make a movie and ultimately you're making a movie about a mathematician and codebreaker like it's not the sexiest thing ever. But the story would be fascinating on its own. That's what I found strange about it. Like the, those creative li- liberties weren't necessary. I think with American Sniper though, what's interesting is that Clint Eastwood's Chris Kyle is way more likable than what we know about the actual Chris Kyle. Like Bradley Cooper's Chris Kyle is kind of like that Leonard Skinner song, Simple Man. Like, Yes you know, ma'am, okay, yeah. Yeah, like, <laughs> be something you love and understand like he's just this kind of I don't know stoic meat and potatoes guy when the real Chris Kyle was supposed to be very boastful and maybe a pathological liar and maybe fought Jesse Ventura in a bar one time people say but I mean again this is a thing that I really liked about American Sniper because in a way it does seem like he's a simpler man or something but when you start asking the questions that American Sniper asks you to ask about how America sort of mythologizes these people, how we're indoctrinated to believe or they're indoctrinated to believe in family, God and country. And when you do that through a character who's created to be a perfect embodiment of those ideals instead of this flawed sort of thick headed jockish adrenaline junkie, which may be closer to the real Chris Kyle, I think that those questions become harder to ask because you have someone who represents them in a way that's a lot more earnest and um, And then you actually, I think, have to deal with them. Like, what if someone actually believes all these things? What if we have a perfect subject of American patriotism and you still have to question the content of that patriotism? To me, that's a more interesting question than being like, this guy just thought he loved his country, but really he was like a barroom brawler. You're making me like American Sniper so much more. <laughs> I hope so. But I, I, but I will say that I think there's a, a question here of like the difference between narrative warping and narrative invention. This is why I thought it worked a little bit better with American Sniper, where which took some liberties in the character, but but for the most part there there's it's like it's truths. Whereas Imitation Game really does hang on this essential falsehood: the fact that in real life the two of those just, the guys never met. Like there's just no way they would have met. Uh, that situation never happened. It was just you know a thing. And and it's sort of this beautiful dream of the critical viewer, which is to say, yeah, I'm going to go see this movie and then I'm going to learn more. And that's a great idea. I just don't think that that's realistic. I think a lot of times when people go to the movies, they they go to be entertained and, and to, to watch something. And most of the time, it's a pretty passive experience. Um, I just I just feel like that's more of an ideal than a reality. Yeah. And I mean, I think you can learn things from these movies that are important. But I mean, again, to use the case of American Sniper, you're interrogating perhaps deeper or as deep truths as the historical truth, which is, again, why does America mythologize sort of soldier, sailor, martyrs like this while totally ignoring the veterans who come home and lose their legs and have sort of post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, And when you're thinking about that through, again, like I said, sort of a more perfect articulation of that, it makes it more difficult. Uh, The Alan Turing thing, I think, is just pure sort of narrative invention, I suppose. And I think there is more of a responsibility when it comes to Alan Turing's case because it's a really 
unique instance in which you have a person whose reputation was completely destroyed, whose life was destroyed. And so I feel like... Well, he was pardoned years after his uh, his ago. death. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, so we've eliminated right off the bat Grand Budapest Hotel. Uh, we talked about the, the, the four biopics that are on the table. So that's Selma, uh, The Theory of Everything, Imitation Game, and American Sniper. So let's say, you know, let's take that biopic category. Let's make that their own thing. Which do we think is the most likely to be the Oscar winner out of those four? My vote is for Sniper, sure winner, perfect Academy movie. Even if it's everything that people who don't like it say that it is, which is sort of a deeply conservative movie posing as like a passably liberal movie, that is what the Academy loves. And it also made a zillion dollars. And the director has been a member of the Motion Picture Academy of Arts and Sciences for a thousand years. American Sniper is a sure shot. No pun intended. I think I would agree. Just edging out Imitation Game for, just because the Academy also loves British people. Uh, <laughs> no, I disagree. I think that they prefer to give awards to American people over British people, and I think that's, if anything, in the reason of those in the that four examples, I think it's going to be American Sniper. It's also very pro-American, mm-hmm. even if even if it is it has a a liberal populism that's perhaps a little um, subtle. Because part of what I is fascinating about American Sniper is you can read into it any way you want. It can be pro-soldier or anti-soldier, depending. And I think just based on virtue of what you can see, what you want to see, but it's all American patriotism in the end, would make it my guess out of those four. And Emma? I was convinced that the imitation game would win, not because I think it's the best movie, um, only because I agree. I think that they love British people, and I think uh, the gays are really in right now. <laughs> Certainly the uh, Academy, they love them there. But and it would be fun to see Cumberbatch of... win an Oscar and then go on to play like Doctor Strange, yes, which he's yeah. supposed to do in a Marvel movie, an Oscar-winning actor. Um, I, but you guys are kind of convincing me of American Sniper. All right. So I'm not sure I'm caught. This would be me in the Academy room and everyone's making their voice. <laughs> I'd be like Chris Kyle and start putting people in headlocks and saying, Sniper. So then let's talk about what I think is the favorite. Uh, I mean, by my by my view, I think is the favorite, which is Boyhood. Uh, so, I mean, let's let's leave the biopic stuff there. Mm-hmm. I mean, what so what did you guys think of Boyhood, Julia? I think that's the one that's going to win Best Picture. And I think I'm I'm in the majority there. But I mean, maybe not in this room, but certainly in, in terms of uh, reviews. But I think that even though American uh, Sniper was the favorite in our, our last conversation, I don't actually think it's going to win because I don't actually think it's interesting enough. It's still just a story about war and war has been told in its different angles and narratives every way possible. And Boyhood is a coming of age story, which has also been told in every way possible, except for this one new way, which is in real time. And I think that they're going to award that. Right. I I mean, I I agree. I think Boyhood's incredible. Uh, I think it's one of the maybe great American movies ever made, I would say. Uh, It's one of those films, it's like Robert Altman's Nashville, where it feels like as big and as real as life itself. Um, And I love Linklater. I think that Linklater is an amazing, seriously underappreciated filmmaker who's always, mostly always, uh, doing interesting, compelling stuff. And, you know, I would feel a faint fluttering in my heart if Boyhood were to win Best Picture. Uh, That said, I don't think it will. I think a lot of people uh, mistake the fact that we're shot over 12 years in this as mere gimmickry. Mm -hmm. uh, And it will be sort of that will be held against it when I would argue that the quote gimmick is the whole point, which is that you're sort of seeing people grow and age in real time in front of you. You develop a sort of an affection and affinity towards them that you don't in a normal movie. To talk about Eastwood again, his J. Edgar film where you see Leonardo DiCaprio caked on with makeup and he looks like a repugnant ghoul. Mm. Uh, It's not that sort of Hollywood movie where they're using these kind of things. It's something we've, as you said, never seen before, at least 
least not in a narrative context, maybe in a documentary context. Mm -hmm. But let me just ask about the gimmick. I mean, so for me, I think Boyhood is going to win. I loved Boyhood quite a lot, but it, it becomes such a hard movie to look at almost critically because it's so tied up with the way that it was shot, the the essential like question of how, you know, the, the thing that it was made f- to showcase. I think that on its own, if you look at it as a pure narrative, I think it's not that interesting a movie. There's obviously the little stuff in, in life, which is beautiful. But I think it's really hard to separate the two, isn't it? Well, I mean, in a lot of cases, style is substance. And in in the case of Boyhood, I think the style or the way that it was made is, again, much more substantial than something like Birdman. Birdman, to me, reeks of gimmickry. Boyhood, like I say, is sort of, again, yoking you into close quarters with these people. I mean... When people say that not enough happens, I don't know, like, should he get attacked by a vampire? Like, should he go to Iraq or something? I mean, so much stuff happens. You see the relationships with the different stepdads. You see him sort of falling in and out of love. You see him going to college and forming relationships with people. You see Ethan Hawke's character as the father sort of totally molt from a loser Ethan Hawke character into a sort of respectable later life Ethan Hawke character. I think... You know, so much happens in that movie. It's hard to put in a nutshell because a nutshell is this is a movie made over 12 years. Um, But I don't think it's short on incident or drama at all. I think that one of the things that's that resonates with people with Boyhood is that it is a fairly universal story told in a specific way. And that's what a good coming of age story does. But I will say that even though I I agree with that and I agree that I I really liked watching him um, the different him develop different relationships and grow up and all of the the trappings of of boyhood. um, I have, you know, when I think back on all the books that I had to read in high school and university and I think of things like Catch in the Rye and so on, I've read a lot of coming of age stories about men. And I it's it's really ingrained in what a coming of age story is to me because those are most of the ones that I read. And I just, you know, I I'm kind of bored of that part of it. And despite the fact that it was um, filmed over the course of 12 years, and that was super fascinating to see, it was just, I don't know, I didn't, I wasn't able to see enough of like myself in it. And some other people that I know, usually women are like, yeah, I'm also kind of bored of that that storyline too. It's not just that it's it's about when someone going to make girlhood. It's just that it's it just reminded me of a story. A lot of uh, men are like, wow, it really reminded me of my own life. And to me, it was like, it really reminded me of lives I watched mm-hmm. other people have. I also thought I, it was also generationally uh, representative, I thought. Well, you uh, watch the sort of Bush and Obama yeah. administration sort of transpire in the background of those yeah. films. You saw social media rise, cell phones appear. Harry Potter, yeah. Halo. It was actually the music cues. You know when they would be like in the bar and you would like hear a song from 1999 and you were like, oh man, I know what year we're in now yeah. based on that Third Eye Bly song or whatever it was. <laughs> what opens with the yellow by Coldplay, yeah. I think. Right. Yeah. Okay, so I want to talk a little bit about Whiplash, which is like the, I've never heard of that movie movie that's nominated for Best Picture. There's always one of them. And um, so it's about this tale of this really impressive young jazz drummer who's trying to, he's in music school and he's desperate to impress this exacting senior instructor and earn a spot in the senior band. And J.K. Simmons is nominated for um, the role of this particular exacting um, senior instructor. Did you get, did you guys see this movie? Yeah, J.K. Yeah. Simmons mm-hmm. is the dad in Juno. And the uh, J. Jonah Jameson right. from Spider-Man. Oh, was- and the uh, frothing Nazi patriarch from Oz, if we want to go oh, all the way there. There's nothing he can't do. <laughs> he was Benedict Cumberbatch before Benedict yeah. Cumberbatch. Except he's a shoo in though, for Best Supporting Actor, I truly believe. He's a shoo-in. And I, I thought that movie was actually quite incredible. And I'm one of those people who has a sort of willfully ignorant, uninformed view of jazz music and just thinks yes, that it's well. u- uniformly <laughs> terrible. And I'm like... Okay, oh. well, I'm, I, 
This explains the Birdman thing. Oh, bro- yeah. yeah. That's what really turned me off was the light jazz. But I went in there being like, oh, brother, a movie about jazz drumming, like something that on paper I couldn't be less that, interested in. No, I mean, it's it's like, I don't know. It was very well made, especially for Damien Chazelle. I think the director's name is. It's his second film. So this is quite an accomplishment. Uh, very intense. It felt like a sports movie. But instead of the coach being this sort of father figure, he was this kind of demonic, evil person. And you don't know if he's actually pushing the kid. He reminded me of the the sergeant in Full Metal Jacket. Yeah, That's totally, me totally. And I think what was so like gratuitously cruel, like no, not no need for that. And his atrocious behavior I mean this is not much of a spoiler alert but just somebody who is this draconian thinks that their atrocious behavior can push either A push somebody to be great in which case he's vindicated or B they fold under the pressure in which case he was right all along and that part like it, even though he's clearly like a capital not a nice man he got me with logic on that one because he can't ever lose well to get back to the history thing actually they use this structuring myth in the movie which is that Charlie Parker uh, right, threw, threw a drum at the head of a drummer who like wasn't playing in the right no, tempo no no the opposite right? oh, the op- was it, oh the opposite right so the drummer so Bird Charlie Parker got a cymbal thrown at his head right and he narrowly missed it right sorry again I don't know anything about jazz except what I've learned from this movie and even then <laughs> apparently so but this is the myth that they used to be like and this made Charlie Parker the greatest jazz musician of all time but then you get like in the New Yorker people be like this isn't actually how it happened he didn't throw a symbol at his head and people fact checking it it's like well it's just supposed to be a story right. isn't that how myth is that, that, is, yeah, that, is, myth? that is animating the drama of this film right. um, but I mean I think that for anyone who's ever tried to be not just competent, but truly good at something, uh, there's something really exciting about Whiplash. That scene when he's at the dinner table and he just kind of like tells off his dad and his like jockey cousins who think that they're yeah. going to go to the NFL and who don't care about the fact that he might be a world-class jazz drummer. Like that was so Yeah, good. and he says like, I'd rather die of heroin at a young age than and be talked about at a dinner table. Lennon and McCartney, they were school buddies, am I right? Charlie Parker didn't know anybody until Joe Jonas threw a symbol at his head. So that's your idea of success, huh? I think being the greatest musician of the 20th century is anybody's idea of success. Dying broke and drunk and full of heroin at the age of 34 is not exactly my idea of success. I'd rather die drunk, broke at 34 and have people at a dinner table talk about me than live to be rich and sober at 90 and nobody remember who I was. But I think also, I mean, part of what they don't talk, whether the, the, the myth of Charlie Parker is true and they use it correctly in the movie or not, he was also a, a famous recluse. He just like locked himself in his mother's house for years and just played the saxophone and didn't talk to people, have any relationships. And it's kind of like a sociopath in that regard. And he was a genius, but they don't tell that part of the story. It was like you have to give up every other part of your life to to achieve this greatness. That part is not told. Isn't this uh, Malcolm Gladwell, the other great Canadian hero, Malcolm 10, Gladwell's theory that right. at 10,000 oh, yeah. hours uh, you become good at it? I mean, you can lock lots of people in a room. You they, you lock Jackson 5 in a room and you, only one Michael yeah. Jackson emerges. Just to be clear, you shouldn't do that. Oh, though. right. <laughs> just want to again on the record, yeah. Um, but the thing I like about Whiplash is it's not just that, you know, hard work, perseverance, sweat, you got to cut your hands open and bleed, but there might be something so weird and magical as like talent in people, you know, and in a way that can be pushed externally. Yeah. And that can be sort of, yeah, brought out of someone. Uh, and I, I like that idea. You know, I don't like the idea that like all our artists and people who are, are you know, our greatest athletes just like clocked in and put in the time. It's so unromantic. Like, I love the idea that you have this sort of nascent thing inside of you that you just sort of have to train um, in order to become great. Yes. That's why I play dodgeball, by the way, so I can find the thing that I'm prodigal at. I'm just hoping it's like a niche sport. <laughs>
Uh, Mine is like eating cheeseburgers yeah. and like napping through the news, I guess. Yeah, yeah. we all have our thing. Yeah. <laughs> well, I guess uh, you'll have to watch the Oscars on Sunday night. Uh, maybe you're hearing this already and you have all the answers. Thanks for listening anyway. So you can check out uh, what John Semley has to say on other films, including Jupiter Ascending is your latest story, right? That's right, with uh, Eddie Redmayne, no there less. You, you can check that out on mclean's.ca. Uh, we also have additional uh, Oscars coverage at mclean's.ca, and hopefully you'll check that out. And in the interim, uh, thanks for coming, John. Yeah, thanks for having me, guys. And happy Oscars to all. And to all a good night. So last week on Valentine's Day, the movie Fifty Shades of Grey came out and immediately took box offices by storm. It's just beyond this door. What is? My playroom. Like your Xbox and stuff? So to help us talk about the movie, we brought in Colin Munch, who is one of the writers of Spank, the Fifty Shades parody, which has been touring the world for about three years. Thanks for joining us, Colin. Thank you for having me. So uh, so I guess walk us through why you decided to make a parody at all about Fifty Shades. Well, it wasn't my choice. I, I was hired by a company in New York called Mills Entertainment, and it was just kind of a no-brainer. The book had already blown up. The whole trilogy was out at the time, and it's a perfect storm of um, target audiences in terms of theater because the general demographic for theater is women aged 35 to 50. They are, are the primary ticket buyers for uh, sort of larger scale productions. And that has a um, to complete crossover with the um, demographic that was buying the book. So it was kind of a no-brainer. And we specifically marketed it towards uh, like girls' night outs and the bachelorette party crowds. So it's a show that um, we do a lot of uh, shows at casinos or uh, large-scale hotels, and we just get like, huge groups of people come to see it uh, mm-hmm. as part of their evening out. Um, well, I guess you're you're kind of perfectly suited to answer what I think we really are trying to figure out, which is, you know, this movie has really blown up. And sort of, I guess, unsurprisingly, the, the book yeah. was obviously this huge phenomenon, as you well know. But I, what we can't really quite figure out is who this movie is supposed to be for. Uh, and maybe you can help us with that. No, nope, no, I can't. Okay, I have great. no idea who <laughs> would watch this movie, but so many people have. Right? So many people have. Uh, I guess it's for fans of the book. Because it's a very straight-ahead uh, adaptation. Mm-hmm. Of, like, all the boxes were checked, as far as I could tell, of, over the plot points. Mm-hmm. I should say they hit all the same points that we hit when we were making fun of it, but they just didn't make fun of it. Yeah, and I don't think that very many people going to see the movie, even fans of the book, take it too seriously. Yeah. Like, I, I, don't, I think most people are going to see it expecting it to be very campy. But I think what surprised a lot of us here at the podcast who went to see it was that... It was really boring. Yeah, it's really boring. Nothing happens, and the dialogue is so bad that there's no there's no emotional tension. And I and I think that um, the actors are really talented. Like I've seen um, the male lead in the fall; he's amazing, and he mm-hmm. plays a very similar type of character. Yeah, Jamie Dornan. Serial Jamie Dornan. killer. It should be noted. Yeah, yeah. a psychopath, <laughs> which is what Christian Grey is. Right. He's a psychopath. He's trying so hard to bring something to the character, but it's just not there. And I found the movie characters to be much more sympathetic to the book characters because they're so easy to mock on the page. But when you have real human beings uh, saying these lines and, and you can just see them there, there's you almost can't help but sympathize for the horrible situation that both of these people are in, <laughs> that they've put themselves in. Why am I here, Christian? You're here because I'm incapable of leaving you alone. Don't. The reason for me, I thought I only 
you know, I had to read the book because I wrote a, a review of the movie, right. and I read the book the day before I saw the movie, and I found the book, even though I, you know, it's it's known to be pretty bad. The prose is awful, but at least there was sex, right? It delivered yeah. on this sort of <laughs> yeah. promise of pornography, and that was a promise that the film couldn't keep because it was not even NC-17. It was just rated R, mm-hmm. and so you had the the dialogue of a of a porno without the sex, which yeah. I thought it was what made it boring. I think that that's a good point because it's not really a romance story. And in the way that like a lot of romance novels have successfully been turned into movies, but this is an erotica story that was turned into a movie. And I think people confuse the idea with it being, that confuse it for a romance story, which it is not. And in the same way that I just said that what was good about the book, like you could sit through the the thin character development and plot if you with the promise of sex, which in the book actually was not that bad, but they couldn't mm-hmm. do it in the movie. And mm-hmm. I think they should have gone full NC-17, but they wussed out. Mm-hmm. And that's where they fell down. But here's what I'll say about the sex, right, is I will I will grant that the, like the first scene, like, it's, it's all right. It was like a pretty, it was like a par for the course. Like, Man on top. <laughs> deflowering. If you, for listeners of the podcast, know that's Emma's favorite thing. That's two for two now on deflowering. <laughs> deflowering In her love stories. Um, but but it gets to a point where they, they try really hard to be sexy. There are, no, I believe, four sex scenes in the film. Um, and by the end, it's no longer sexy in, because, you know, it's sort of like the adage where, like, if everything is made out to be really important, then nothing becomes important. If everything is trying to be super sexy, by the end, it's profoundly unsexy. I uh, felt really uncomfortable for Dakota Johnson mm-hmm. because I felt by the end of the film, they were trotting her body out, like, to keep us interested in the movie. Like, she gets naked so many times, and every time it happened, I just felt I felt so bad for her because I felt that, well, it's been 20 minutes since we've seen Dakota naked, so I guess we'll take her clothes off, and that will be a, 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 the next evolution of the plot is let's get these characters naked. Also, because we had this, this promise of sex and we were, like, willing to live through the fact that there was not a firm foundation, like, no cohesive backstory as to what why the characters make the choices that they do. I guess they hoped that would build some mystery, but instead it just, it didn't build any empathy. So you're just like, oh, I guess they're doing this now, and I don't know why, but the sex is coming. I just felt like they didn't know where to land, They were, and they just landed in a very bland and vague place. Like, they, I think it was either because they did that so that the viewers could see what they wanted to see in those scenes, kind of like the way that um, when asked her name, Julia Roberts says in Pretty Women, it's whatever you want it to be, or the filmmakers were so afraid of offending or alienating their audience that they didn't firmly define what they wanted to be, and it just ended up like a mush of silky rope and handcuff pablum. Mm-hmm. But let me let me pull it back to the question that I have. So okay, so we've established that the film is surprisingly not very sexy. There's a lot of sex in it, but there's very little that titillated us, right? So, and it's certainly not a love story because, well, you know, it just isn't. So it's not for people who are, like, out to look for a really lovely romance. It's not for people who are out for, like, a crazy sex romp, you know, necessarily for girls' night out stuff. Um, And the other thing, and let's pull it back to what Emma was saying, it's also not so bad that it's hilarious. Mm -hmm. It's just so bad that it's bad. Is that sort of the feeling you guys had? Yep. It's bad that it's boring. Um, what what uh, Sarmishta, one of my editors who who edited the piece that I wrote, said is that maybe in North America we don't really know how to deal with erotica yet, especially erotica on screen, and we think that maybe erotica has to be humorless, like 
you know, BDSM and and lightness and a sense of humor have to be somehow mutually exclusive, like yeah. they can't meet. And that's not really the case because in any sex or anything that is sexy is also kind of funny or awkward. There are moments of lightness, of light and dark. Otherwise, if it's all dark, like you said, it's just boring and weird. Yeah, mm-hmm. and the whole movie is humorless and dark. Like the color palette of that film is gray, blue, white, black. There are yellow airplanes right at the end of the movie, and it's so exciting to see yellow airplanes. We're talking a lot about how the movie itself is really humorless, and clearly your show is popular with with women and bachelorette groups and people, Mm -hmm. you know, women who are probably fans of the franchise Fifty Shades of Grey who want to see it in a more humorous light. What was that like? Yeah, well, my big mission with writing that show was I didn't want to make fun of the people who liked it. I didn't want to. I guess maybe part of it was growing up as a nerd and being so used to being mocked for the things that I really cared about. And I think that a lot of our audience is aware of how silly the concept is, but they like it anyway. And I and I didn't want to um, go after that. I didn't want to be vicious about that because we'd alienate our whole audience. So our show traffics in. Uh, we have huge babes playing the part. And um, our original uh, Hugh Hansen is the name of our lead for copyright reasons. Um, but our original actor for Hugh Hansen is a burlesque performer, so he created a, a, a number of dance routines for himself to perform, so we we kind of trot him out and he shows his body off, and it's all very funny and it's in good fun. And then um, the rest of the show is pretty much just a sketch comedy show and a really straightforward parody, and people really get behind it. They love hearing moments that they remember from the books and uh, lines they remember from the books being specifically lampooned because they know we're all in on the joke together. So do you think the, the- the movie should have more embraced that the ability to make fun of itself. Do you think the film as an adaptation should have embraced some of those those those, those campier lines? Yeah, but I think the movie, the director and the screenwriter and the, the leads had their hands tied by the studio, by, by the phenomena of the book to begin with. What we ended up with as a book is um, like a bad video game adaptation or like a picture book. You, you hit all the beats of the story. You see everything you want to see. Um, so it's more kind of like a companion piece to the novel than its own thing, which is one type of film adaptation. I think if they'd went for a campy route, um, the world would be a better place. Like the, a lot of things about Hollywood would be a lot different to allow a campy, fun Fifty Shades of Grey movie. You know, we probably wouldn't have ended up with the Hobbit movies. <laughs> that we did in that Hollywood. You know what I mean? Yeah. Well, you can read Emma's take on Fifty Shades of Grey, as well as Patricia Treble's review of the movie at mclean's.ca. You can also check out Spank, the Fifty Shades parody, at spankshow.com. Thanks, Colin, for coming in. Thanks. Well, that's it for this week. Find new episodes every Friday at mclean's.ca and, hopefully very soon, on iTunes and Stitcher. Drop us a comment on the site to tell us what we should talk about or tell us how we're doing. Our theme song is by Young Clancy. John Semley, who joined us for our Oscar segment, is on Twitter at johnsemley3000. Colin Munch is at Colin Munch. And as for the three of us, you can follow Emma on Twitter at Emma Rose Title, follow Julia on Twitter at Julia Del J, and me at Adrian K. Lee. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk to you next week.